gun Ramos looking like he's got one more good run Sips a little shaky But his heart is still true Oh how that dog loves hunting with me and you Sporting dog adventures run The Sporting Dog Adventures podcast is proudly brought to you by Soggy Acres Retrievers. Remember, everyone deserves a soggy dog. Welcome to Sporting Dog Adventures. Today I want to talk about Labrador Retriever colors, breeding for them, and some different characteristics and traits that those colors will have. So let's start with the colors of Labrador Retrievers. There are three colors. There's black, there's yellow, which ranges from an almost white to a uh, rust colored called fox red, and there's chocolates. Any other colors are not recognized by the founding club of the uh, Labrador Retrievers, the LRC. As far as the colors themselves and how they present in a litter, uh, I often will get people that will call and they'll say, well, you know, I suppose you have to wait until a litter is born until you know what colors you have. For some people, if they don't know their lineage, that absolutely can be true. If you do know your lineage and your genetics of your dogs, you are going to know what potential colors will be represented in a litter. To give you an idea, it goes back to our high school days, which for me was a long, long time ago, and Punnett Square, which is where they had Big E that was dominant and Little E that was recessive, and then you had that on a square, and you could tell uh, if it would be a dominant color, if it would be carry recessive traits, and so on. In Labrador Retrievers, black labs are the dominant color. Yellows and chocolates are recessive traits, so for a litter to have a certain color in it, both parents have to carry those recessive traits. All litters can be black, uh, depending on the parents, because of the fact that you are looking at the dominant color. But for a litter to have chocolates or yellows, both of the parents would have to carry the chocolate recessive to have chocolates and the yellow recessive to have yellows. So it basically comes down to when you have a, let's say, a chocolate dog that you're going to breed to a yellow dog, neither of them carry other recessives, you would actually have all black puppies. Kind of wild when you think of it. You've got two different colors that would have all black litters. I actually used this in my breeding program several times to give myself genetic variation in my lines. I looked at it and went, wow, these are some great dogs that aren't in chocolate lines. Uh, to begin with, it was a, I first did this with a yellow male. I bred the yellow male to my, uh, my chocolate female, and I had a litter of black puppies. And it was neat because having a yellow and chocolate uh, mother and father and having an all-black puppy, those puppies then both carried the uh, genetic uh, recessives for both colors. So to explain that, I had a black puppy that could throw yellow and chocolate as well. It's called trifactored. It's neat because, one, you get genetic variation, but two, it gives you a lot of different options when you're breeding your dogs. You can have yellow puppies out of that litter, which it was a black female, so if I bred a yellow to that litter and he did not throw chocolate, we would have half black puppies, we would have half chocolate, or half yellow puppies. 
Again, if you bred a chocolate uh, to that female and he did not throw yellow, you would have half black and half chocolate. Half black because the mother was black and then the other 50% would represent the uh, recessive trait that the father carried as well as what the mother carried. I personally like having a black stud dog that does carry both traits just because it gives you a lot of options when you are going to breed your dogs so that you can uh, you can uh, use them on different litters. My dog Rommel, who was the star of our TV show Sporting Dog Adventures, was trifactored. So I have females out of Rommel's line that are yellow and I have females out of Rommel's line that are chocolate. It's, it's just a neat thing that you can do with your genetic variation when you're putting stuff together. When you look at labs as well, you can have a, gener a pedigree with five generations. We've got five generation pedigrees where they're only about 15 years from one dog to another because of the fact that you can breed dogs after they turn two years old. So how I looked at it was I'm not going to breed for a certain color for a litter, I'm going to breed for 10 years down the line in my, I guess, my theory or my breeding program to have this plan of how I wanted my lines to end up. Now we're to the point where uh, Rommel is 15 years old. Uh, he is actually uh, uh, out of most of our lines. He's in the third and fourth uh, generation of most of our, our dogs that we have that were out of him. And I've got frozen uh, semen from Rommel and in another five years or so, I will likely get back to the point where I have a stud dog that will be directly out of Rommel, and I'll be able to use that on all of my females that I have because they, Rommel's name would not even appear in any of their pedigrees. In other words, there would be about 1% same genetics from Rommel to one of these females that I bred, which if you looked at uh, family trees of people, People are always amazed at, you go back generations, how they can find similarities between famous people, uh, between people of color, between different things that you never knew was in what was in your genealogy. So that's something that's kind of neat with dogs that you can do uh, that we're going to uh, do with Rommel here as one of our next stud dogs. Uh, we've got two young stud dogs now, Ace and Tank. Uh, Ace is black. He only throws black. Tank is chocolate. He only throws chocolate and black, obviously. And both of those dogs are completely uh, genetic opposites of anything we have. We have, they have no we have uh, no females that are related to them, so it's nice because we can use them on all of our future litters. We'll have several generations from them, and then we can go back to the point where we have our, our new stud dog that will be out of Rommel that we can use on all of those females as well. Now let's go to the question of does color have anything to do with a dog's temperament, uh, with their drive, with their ability. You will hear people that will say that yellows are hyper, uh, blacks are pig-headed, chocolates are stupid. None of that is genetically possible to be true. It basically comes down to your dogs are going to represent what the parents had. So when you look at it, dogs are going to reflect the ability and the temperaments of the parents and of that breeding pair. So to say that a yellow is hyper, could there be hyper yellows? Absolutely there are. But it's because of the match that was put together with the mom and dad. It's not from the color of the dog's uh, coat. Uh, again, are there chocolates that are stupid? Absolutely, I'm sure there are. But it is not from the dog's 
color of their hair it is from the actual dogs uh, the, the pairing uh, that was created and black stubborn sure some some blacks are stubborn not all are again it comes down to the parents when you are buying a puppy you want to look at pedigree you want to get something that's got a lot of titles in it and that three to five generation pedigree so that you are getting ability and you're getting proven ability from the parents in the past this is what is going to give you a dog that's going to have great drive trainability and hopefully uh, you talk to the breeder and you get a good temperament on your dogs as well again this stuff is from the parents not from the color of the dog so just something to kind of uh, keep an eye on my favorite color has always been chocolate Labrador Retrievers uh, my first dog was Lily Bell I got her as a wedding present from uh, actually my ex-wife's parents <coughs> and Lily and I uh, learned all about hunting uh, with dogs together. Um, I learned about handling a dog while well, Lily learned about handling a human. Uh, in our first hunt test, it was funny, I took her to a hunt test and uh, she uh, ran past the bird, she looked at it, and then she ran to the pond and was chasing fish. She loved chasing fish. We have a pond right across from the house. She would spend six to eight hours chasing fish around in the, uh, in the water. That was quite embarrassing for me. Here I've got my dog, I'm all excited. She's at a hunt test and she's out there chasing fish. So, obviously we didn't pass, but uh, I, Lily taught me a lot about working with a dog, about putting pressure on a dog, about giving dog praise, and also was one of the finest dogs I've ever had hunting-wise. Uh, just a phenomenal dog. I didn't waterfall hunt a whole lot at the time. It was more uh, where I was uh, doing upland, but that dog was just a machine. She was called the finisher by my friends because you could take her out on the field and she would take care of business and she would put up all the birds. I would take out four guys, I had one dog, and we would, uh, we would just put up more birds than probably three dogs would have. A special dog, a great dog, and she was my first hunting dog, which I still miss that dog. She was so great. She lived to 12. Um, dogs don't live long enough. She was a great one. I've had a lot of great ones since, but Lily was special, and I had that bond with her where she was really my buddy, and she was... Uh, it was funny. She would she would only hang out with me. She was purely my dog. So again, when you're looking at dogs, find a good pedigree, find a good breeding program, and uh, find yourself someone that breeds for temperament so you can find your great dog. It all comes down to uh, the pairing, and then from there, it comes down to the time that you're going to put into them. Hope you guys enjoyed this section of our podcast. Stay tuned next for our training tip, which is going to be about upland hunting. This part of the podcast is brought to you proudly by Mech Outdoors. I wanted to talk about upland hunting today. Just got done training uh, the dogs I have here in the kennel at Soggy Acres Retrievers and took them out. And I thought this would be a great way to explain how I do upland hunting and training uh, with the dogs. What I do is I have frozen birds. I take out five birds and I have my straight line that I have down the field. I put the birds out on the outside of my line that I'm going to walk with the dogs and then I just uh, take the dogs through the field. I will actually weave back and forth. I try to use, uh, I always get the dogs into the wind and then let them smell the bird and eventually find it. Now, I've talked about quartering in the past, but today I'm watching the dogs and I'm thinking, gosh, I should talk about this. 
I use the wind to the advantage. Let the dogs get downwind and don't pressure them. Don't hurry them. Don't rush them because I'm sitting watching these dogs. They would get a whiff. Sometimes they run the wrong direction. Sometimes they run the right direction. But every time it took them quite a while until they could go and find the bird. And then once they found the bird, not always did they pick it up. So what I would do is throw the bird for them and tell them to fetch it up. And I ultimately used this for multiple options or multiple things to train with. We worked on picking up and holding birds. We worked on our quartering. We worked on finding birds. And we worked on control, keeping them uh, at, a, at a good safe distance. Safe distance as in safe so that you don't lose the bird, so that the bird flies up where they're out of range. So this was something that I did today. It was neat watching these dogs. I had eight of them I took out, and every one of them did wonderful, but they all took time to get to the bird so that you want to make sure you're giving them that time, letting them learn how to find the bird. And the other thing is don't get caught up in yelling, hunt it up, hunt it up, hunt it up, hunt it up, trying to egg the dog on. Let them go out naturally so that they decide that they want to hunt and let them work. Once they find a bird or two, then it's all about keeping them in range because they're getting excited and they're running out. But don't worry about telling a dog to hunt it up. Less is more so much in dog training and less talk to the dogs when they need to go out and let their natural uh, prey drive take over means a lot. So take them out, put birds out, put them in a position so that the wind is in their favor so that they will wind the bird and just watch them work. It is a fun thing and it is one of the one of the most neat things you'll see about working with young dogs. That's it for this week's training tip. Next, we are going to go to our hunting tip, which is about scouting. This portion of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Boucher Automotive in Janesville, Wisconsin. Waterfall season is upon us, and the best secret for finding a good spot is scouting. You have to put in some time to find an area where the birds want to be. Uh, we have teal season coming up. I've got multiple spots that I think will be good, and I'm going to actually try to canoe out to some of those places and just sit and make sure there's birds in the area. Will I be on the X? Probably not the first time, but it'll be a good chance to get out, give me something to do, and get me a little exercise. You want to make sure that you're at least putting in time so that you can see some birds. I've been on hunts when people haven't scouted and you sit there and you only see them sky high where they're migrating or they're absolutely going somewhere uh, that is not where you are. Uh, you want to make sure there's birds in the area. You want to try to figure out what they're eating and you want to put yourself in the best position to have a nice day. Now, I'm not going to say that I am the greatest person at scouting. I just try to make sure I can find an area that has birds. From there, as long as I know there's a fighting chance, a lot of times that's good enough for me. I probably could put in more time and have a spot where you could limit. But for me, it's just having a chance, being out there with birds and being out there with my kids. So put your time in. Put yourself in a position to be successful. Give yourself a chance by doing a little scouting before your hunt. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. God bless. Sporting dog adventures run, boy, run. Everything you need.
sun.